Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how to truly live. You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. Take your Bibles and let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're with us, you're joining the second to last message here on Ecclesiastes. We in Ecclesiastes 11. We've been away from the text for two weeks. One week we stayed away because of horrible snowy conditions. Then the next week we braved those two inches and we came uh, to hear Stacy lead us through Ephesians 2 and call us to the right kind of zeal for good works. Um, Stacy, thank you so much for your generosity and your faithfulness in the word preaching. Uh, as we were talking as a community group, I know I and our community group was both convicted and encouraged by the word preached. So thank you, brother. We praise God uh, that he uses um, regular people for the grace and the glory of God and our good in building up. Uh, today I'll be preaching from Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 12, 8. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll be finishing up the book in the last six verses. That means that we are on the home stretch. That should matter to you because it kind of helps us realize that he's closing out his thoughts and he's bringing things together. And what we're going to realize is that he's kind of bringing a lot of the things that he's revealed along the way to a close, to a powerful ending for us to try to answer the question he's been asking all along in this book. Uh, in today's text, you might just notice that our author is bringing these things from different chapters along the way. In fact, if you remember how we began, all the way back in chapter 1, he's going to end the same way, with a poem. If you look back in chapter 1, the first few verses, he gives us a poem. And as we get to chapter 12, he ends with a poem. We see him do this. In the first poem, he made it very clear that despite all the grandeur of effort and accomplishment of so many moving parts in nature, still nothing is gained and nothing is new under the sun. And as he closes things out here in the final poem, we start to believe that he was telling the truth all along. As the author describes the aging and decay and eventual death of a person, he shows us that we too will return to dust and we will take nothing with us to the grave. In that way, our author kind of brings us back to the very question that we asked in the beginning. What is the meaning of life? Or let's just back up one step further. Is there any meaning to life? Our author has taken us on quite a journey in this book. He's laying out an answer to that question of meaning as he's kind of thinking out loud all the problems that he sees with the world around him. He's willing to ask the difficult questions that no one else is willing to ask. He's trying his best to make sense of the world from every possible angle. And on this path, he's been giving us pieces to that answer all along the way. And now, as he closes up the book, he's starting to put them all together. So, let's read our text together. Then I'll pray a short prayer, and then I'll preach. Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 12, 8. 
This is the word of God. Light is sweet and is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. And the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They're afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Would you pray with me together? Lord, we worship you. You are our creator and king. Have mercy on us, poor sinners, who need your grace and forgiveness. We have sinned against you, and we need you. But we thank you for your kindness and continual outpouring of grace through Jesus Christ. As we come to receive this holy food, your, your words to us, would you give us open ears and soft hearts? Speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I think that uh, anyone who has read much classic literature would agree that Charles Dickens had quite a way with words. He actually was probably most famous for several ones that you know already popularly, but some of his opening lines were just stunners. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That's from Tale of Two Cities. All right, we got some literature buffs, Is good. Or how about this? Uh, you'll probably know this. My father's family name being Parap and my Christian name Philip, my infant tongue could make of both names nothing longer or more explicit than Pip. Anyone know? Great expectations, very good. All right, how about this one? I love this opening line, but I didn't know it, so let's see if you know it. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. Anybody know? Uh, I did not either. This is David Copperfield. Opening line for David Copperfield. Okay, I left the last one that I'm pretty sure everyone will get. Here we go. Marley was dead to begin with. Marley. <laughs> he knows the, uh, the Muppets Christmas Carol over there. That's right. You got it. So Marley was dead to begin with. A great opening line. You might also know 
Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. These are his opening lines in A Christmas Carol, right? In that classic story in The Christmas Carol, uh, these opening lines introduce us to Jacob Marley, the business partner of Ebenezer Scrooge. But the author makes it very clear from the very first line that this person is no longer living. And when the first few verses here in the pages that we get of, of this story, we find out that Jacob Marley's actually been dead for seven years. You probably know the story, at least roughly. Scrooge is a, a selfish old miser lives a, a life centered on gaining all the wealth that he can from his own business. He cares nothing for laughter or charity or merriment or even relationships. They all get in the way of profit, which is his chief end. Now, as the story unfolds, we see the distraught ghost of Jacob Marley visit Scrooge to warn him that if Scrooge continues the life that he is living, he will end up in the same place the same agony and chains that Jacob Marley has. And as Marley prophesied, three spirits come to visit Scrooge, each giving him a perspective, one from the past, one from the present. But neither of these are as gripping and persuasive as the spirit that comes to show him the future. The third spirit shows Scrooge the, the happy people that are gathering around dispersing the cheap property that seems almost unused. We also see the, the relief of the poor tenants who are very glad that their landlord is dead. He shows us the death of Tiny Tim, whose parents never had what they needed to take care of the poor boy. And finally, we take and see Scrooge going with the spirit to the graveyard to look at that stone that is engraved with Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, of course, the joy in this little tale is that he wakes up from this experience and he has time to change his life. He can do something about it. In the final pages of the book, this is how he's described. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man, as, good, as the good old city knew and any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. In other words, after this event... Everyone around him agreed that Scrooge had begun to live his life as a changed person. Now, I want to ask, why does Dickens write this story? It's, it's obviously fiction, right? This is, these aren't the, the real life events of some person per se. But in the midst of this, there's actually a really important thread of truth, especially as each of us place ourselves in the role of Ebenezer Scrooge. I want you to hear Dickens and what he says in the preface to the book. It's really short. This is what he says. He's trying to talk to us as readers. He says this, I have endeavored in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea, which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, and with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. Charles Dickens is saying that he wants each and every person that reads this book to agree with his message and not to lay it down as though it doesn't matter, but to do the same thing that Scrooge has done, to change his ways and spend his life wisely, to live generously, to enjoy life and engage in relationships and be charitable to his fellow man. In this way, Dickens isn't only an entertainer, he's a preacher, Right? He's, he's, he's calling our readers to do something. He's saying, hey, you need to change and live in this way. 
Now, Charles Dickens is good, but he's not the original. Uh, Our author here in Ecclesiastes takes us to the brink of eternity, tells us to look out upon it, assures us that each one of us will be facing it, and says, now go back and live. I love David Gibson's little book. Just the title is enough alone. It's Living Life Backward, starting by looking out on eternity and death and bringing it to bear on how you and I must live our lives. If you're expecting to come and learn something today, I hope you will, Um, but more than giving you information, I will be resounding the call of this author and therefore from God for us to live the life that God has given us before our Creator. If I were to put this sermon in one sentence, and I know some of you take this down, it's just a sentence long, this is a whole sermon in a sentence, it would be this. Enjoy life in front of your creator because one day you will grow old, die, and face eternity. Now I'll say it again. Enjoy your life in front of or before your creator because one day you will grow old, die, and face eternity. Now, wait a second here. Some of you were here last week. Some of you understand that Stacy preached from Ephesians 2, and he called us, Paul called us to be devoted to good works. How can Paul in Ephesians say, pursue good works? And our author here in Ecclesiastes say, enjoy your life. Doesn't, doesn't that seem to clash in some way or another? Aren't those two opposing worldviews? Are we supposed to deny ourselves and do good works and fulfill our duties as creatures? Or are we supposed to rejoice in our youth, let our hearts and our eyes cheer us and eat and drink and love and work with all our might? Which one is it supposed to be? I think this is a good question. But guys, I just want you to think this through. I think it actually springs, the question springs from our forgetfulness. This is what I mean by that. I think that we find these two, ta- these two statements so different because we forget that God made us for joy. He didn't make us for suffering as though that's like the chief end of us, but rather for joy. And then we forget that doing good works flows from God's redemptive work in making us new creations in Christ. In other words, we forget that our greatest joy is found in God alone. We make the fundamental error that Stacy highlighted last week, actually, and we switch the works and God's favor around, as though if we somehow do these things, then God will be happy with us, as though we were the first mover, and our hard work of doing good works is the thing that makes God happy. So, how can Ephesians say, pursue good works, and Ecclesiastes say, enjoy your life? Well, I think we we might have a basic problem. And I see this happen so often when I talk to folks in our congregation because we struggle with this very thing. I think that we don't believe, or at least we haven't experienced, I think we don't believe that doing good works is an act of joy, but rather one of duty. And on the other side, we feel guilty about enjoying our lives because we often see our enjoyment 
as an end in and of itself instead of a way to worship God and participate in the momentary gifts that he himself has given us. What we need to do is understand Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10 properly. We were there a, little, a few weeks ago here, but let me just read it for you. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let no oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that, that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought, or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, you might read those first three verses and kind of do the shifty eyes to see if anyone else is reading the same verses and like, this is what the Bible is really telling us to do? To, to, to enjoy ourselves with drink and eat and be merry? I feel like I've heard that said a different way before. It sounds kind of hedonistic, doesn't it? John Piper, a pastor, has gotten himself in a lot of trouble over the years for using the term, but I think it hits the nail on the head when he labels the pursuit of God as Christian hedonism. Don't miss that whole thing there, okay? Listen to what I said. He labels the pursuit of God, the pursuit of knowing, loving God as Christian hedonism. It is not the pursuit of stuff or experience or comforts, is the pursuit of God that will bring eternal joy. The uh, author of Ecclesiastes, guys, he's not a hedonist. People say this a lot of times. He is not a hedonist. He is a Christian hedonist. He understands properly where joy is centered and grounded. How do I know this? Well, our passage today makes it very clear that joy can be pursued when you understand, get this, the meaning of of life. Look at chapter 11, verse 7 here. He says this. I'm just going to read our passage. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now there's a lot going on in these short few verses here. So let me just break down a few thoughts. First of all, life is something to be enjoyed. Now you're like, Chris doesn't, doesn't say that here. Well, let me explain. His way of saying it is way better than mine. I'm just making it very clear for us. Because right away we're actually going to impose different thoughts on this that aren't there. He says something a little bit nicer. Light is sweet, pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. I mean, what a beautiful picture that is. Instead of just saying life is good, he says that life is something that you and I can see right now. It's light. We see it. It's been illuminated for us. And that it is something that is to be enjoyed. It is sweet. The contrast here isn't that we would immediately think, in a sense, we would think that, that it would probably be that like light is good, then darkness is bad. That, that would be my first thought about this. But that's not what he says here. 
Instead, he's not talking about righteousness and evil. He's talking about being alive as something that is a good gift to be enjoyed. But what comes after these years of light is unknown. And you'll see here in verse 8, we find out it's, it's darkness. You and I have no idea what it's like. We don't know what goes beyond the veil. And when I say it's unknown, I'm referring to that sneaky little phrase at the end of verse 8. All that comes is vanity. Now, that doesn't mean that all the future is meaningless or empty or full of pride, the way that we use the word vanity. Remember, if you remember, if you've been with us for any time, that word is hevel. That the idea of um, absurdity or meaninglessness or vanity, that's an interpretation of that word. And it's not wrong, but it doesn't get to the core idea here. We have to let the context tell us and explain how this word is to be used. Hevel itself just simply means mere breath or vapor. In the first one of the first sermons we talked about, I talked about looking out my front window across the field, the bean field there, and above the, the bean field was this haze, usually in most mornings, like a, a fog. But sometimes I look back a few minutes later and it's completely gone. That's the idea here, a, a fog or a mere vapor, something that's here and then gone right away. If the present life we are living then, according to this text, is light, and seen and known, the future is unknown. It's like a vapor. It's ungraspable, something that we can't get in our hands. That's what he's getting at here when he talks about this. You don't know what happens in the afterlife, so what should you and I do? Well, he tells us that life is supposed to be enjoyed, but second, you and I are to rejoice in the life that he's given to us. If God says that life is sweet, then you and I should enjoy it, should, in a sense, kind of eat it up. There's just no way of getting around this, is there? I mean, take a look at verse 8. He says, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Verse 9, he says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Then look at verse 10. He says, remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that he's actually telling us to pursue joy, to rejoice in these things that he's given to us. I mean, verse 9 feels a little strange at first when we start talking about walk in the ways of your heart and in the ways of your eyes. I mean, is that good Christian advice for a young person? But in verse 10, it gets really uncomfortable. He says we are to remove vexation and put away pain or troubles from our body. Is that really what we're supposed to do? Well, yes. Remember that this is a God-fearing wisdom teacher who has already told us what vexation and pain come from. In the book of Ecclesiastes, our author has looked behind every tree. He's overturned every rock trying to figure out wisdom, knowledge. He's trying to understand the scheme of things. And as he tries to understand how God works and how all these things that don't make sense, how he puts them all together, he comes up and guess what he is? Vexed, sorrowful, angry. He doesn't understand the ways of God. If you remember this, in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He is telling us to read this wisdom, to abandon our human striving to figure out how God works, 
And instead, rejoice in the life that he has given to us. And then that little word pops up again. It reminds us of the brevity of life, right? Vanity or hevel. He tells us that youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now, that has been misused so many times, I can't tell you, as though like all young people, their life is just full of pride and things don't matter. That may be certainly true. That's not his point here, though. That's not what he's trying to do. Instead, he isn't saying that youth is meaningless or full of pride. In the context, he's saying that it's like a vapor, like mere breath, like a fog that is here and then gone in a moment. Many of us know it, right? Our youth is fleeting. My goodness, we've, if you've been around this church even for a little while, you realize that with our own children. You watch it in like a blink of an eye, and all of a sudden we've got a bunch of teenagers in our youth group. It's amazing. We watch this happen so quickly before us. Youth will expire. And so he calls us to rejoice in our youth because it will not be ours forever. But at this point, you've probably noticed that I've skipped over a really important phrase, a phrase that will help us bring gravity to this pursuit of joy. In verse 9, he says this, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, some of you hear this and immediately go back to thinking about self-denial, duty, uh, making sure you do good works, uh, going to church, reading your Bible. Uh, it's going to be safe doing these things that I know are good with God. That sounds a lot safer to me, a lot more secure. A life of duty, I can fall back on that and I'll be good when I meet the judge. Three thoughts here. First, there is a right impulse for you and I to fear when we consider that God is the judge. We should be terrified if we are to stand on the good work that we have done in our life. But we know from Ephesians 2, what Stacy led us through last week, that our good works flow out of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That we are his craftsmanship, his workmanship, and these good works are his that he's given to us to do. Our only hope, then, is him. Our hope doesn't lie in our good works before this judge, but rather in Jesus' good works. The thought of fear is right, but remember where our true hope lies. That's the first thing. The second thought here about this phrase about judgment, have we so quickly forgotten about his command to rejoice in life? Again, if you've been around for the book of Ecclesiastes, he just keeps talking about it, to rejoice in life, to enjoy these things, to find and pursue joy. Does this little qualifying statement then just nullify all the previous statements? No. So what does it mean? Third thought. It may seem like this is a phrase that's meant to kind of balance things out. You know, you kind of go after joy a little bit, but don't but remember, you got to do some good stuff because there's going to be a judge that comes. Th that's kind of how we think about it, isn't it? If we're just honest with ourselves, like I know I'm supposed to pursue joy, but I know I need to do the good things too because I'm going to get judged one day. So I kind of have to do a little of both of these things and that's somehow how God is pleased. And if I just kind of balance that enough, then I'm going to please God and live the right way. Remember that our author is trying to do something different here. I don't think that this is a balancing phrase. I think that this is a statement that's laying down the solid rock truth 
that there is meaning in this life. Remember what he's trying to do here. Our author is trying to show us that life is not absurd, but is meaningful and trying to undo that and understand it. He's trying to place us in a context so that we don't either throw our hands up in vexation and say, it's all absurd, it doesn't matter, who cares? We're all going the way of the world, headed towards nihilism. It doesn't matter at all. We're all going to die. Or the opposite. I guess no one cares about what I do. I might as well live for myself. Get as much of this life I can. Eat, drink, and be merry. Instead of looking out onto an empty eternity, he reminds us that there is someone out there. That that someone is God. And that that someone cares very deeply about how you and I act in this life. Therefore, life is not meaningless to God whatsoever. We may not understand and be able to put all the schemes together and understand how he works and try to figure things out, but that does not mean that it's meaningless. Therefore, the the lives that God has given us are incredibly important and they're meaningful, but it's clear that they won't last forever from the context here. Look at the, the, in chapter 12, this, this poem reiterates this whole point, doesn't it? Life is short, and we're all going to get old. It's pretty difficult for us to imagine what eternity looks like. Again, if we kind of think about staring off into the darkness, we have no idea what it's like. But it isn't so difficult for us to believe him when he says that our youth is fleeting, that we're all getting a little bit older. We start to realize as we look around or experience a little bit more of life. We look at perhaps our parents or those within our church and we watch in different parts of our own lives as we grow older. It's not, it's not too difficult to remember uh, or at least think about that youth is fleeting, that our time here on earth isn't very long. In verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12, we have a poem that strings together several metaphors to paint the picture <coughs> of the end of life. He's going to use the metaphor of weather, and then the metaphor of an old house that is just breaking down. And then he's going to even talk about different things that are, what, when they break, they're of no more use to anyone, and we know it. And then he finishes with these frank statements about man's return to the dust where he came from. Listen as I read it. He says this, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few. Those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors in the street are shut. The sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low, They're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, I know that youth is somewhat a matter of perspective, but that eventually runs out once you're dead. <laughs> uh, but I think I'm, I'm still somewhat pretty young. Um, I can remember 
a little while ago when Kristen and I were talking together about our dads. We're thinking about the years as we watch them now grow a little bit older and more mature. We kind of looked back and remembered when our dads were young and fast and strong. And like they could do anything, it seemed to us. We were so weak and feeble and they could really kind of do everything that they needed to do. And although they, they aren't in wheelchairs or bedridden, uh, they certainly aren't the mighty grasshoppers, in a sense, as this says, that they once were. They're not jumping around, resilient, strong, able to get everywhere. Things have changed a lot. Some of you don't hear like you used to. Some of you don't see like you used to. Some of you don't taste the way that you used to or be able to taste or chew things up. Some of you have a few less teeth. Some of you don't desire the same way that you used to. Some of you know that a simple fall down the front steps could be absolutely treacherous and you have a lot more respect for heights in your older age. Some of you may know this dear lady, but just recently on January 20th, a dear Christian lady and sister of ours, Ruth Louise Orweiler, affectionately known to us as Oma, she walked this pathway and passed into eternity after a full life. We're surrounded by this idea. We understand. We know that it happens. We know that one day we will meet our maker. We can see the progression and what's going to happen. It's not that long. I mean, I, I can't believe I'm 37 years old. I have a wife. I have four children. I have a house. I have life insurance. I mean, I'm practically done, you know? It's unbelievable to me. Youth and the dawn of life are fleeting. I, I, I just thought I was a teenager. And here I am at 37 years old. And guess what happens at the end? We take nothing with us. We will love, we'll live this life, we'll make friendships and, and grow together and we'll build some wealth and we'll maybe get a house, we'll gain some momentum in our careers and make some of a name for ourselves, we'll get some possessions, we'll have experiences. And what happens in the end? We take none of it with us. And that's how he ends in verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. It's all hevel. Now, we've covered this entire passage here pretty thoroughly. As I said before, we can kind of sum it up in that one sentence. I'm going to say it again. As we read this, it's, this, is the, this is the message. Enjoy life in front of your Creator because one day you will grow old, die, and face eternity. Now, we've talked about enjoying your life. We've talked about the day of our death coming very soon as we grow old. But I've saved the best for last. We haven't talked yet about that idea of being in front of your creator before him. What is the Christian message in all of this? This is not a time to get together just to give you some secular wisdom about getting old and making sure you're like Ebenezer Scrooge and doing your best in life. No, this is a Christian message here. It's not about like a, a life is good bumper sticker that if we just look at that, then we're like, okay, I just have a, the right outlook on life and I'll just do what I can. No. What then is this central message? It's found at the very heart of this passage. It's found in verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. When he's saying youth, he's certainly going to talk to you that are young right now. But he's talking to all of us. He's saying those that are still alive, those that are still kicking and able to do all the things that God has given us to do. 
he says to remember your creator in the days of your youth. Here's where he brings us all together. He tells us to rejoice in our youth. He tells us to follow our heart and eyes to get cheer. But here he reminds us of the meaning of life. It's centered not on a philosophy. It's centered in a person. Life is only meaningful when we recognize that we are creatures before our creator. Life can only deliver its gifts properly when we are shaped by the covenant that God has made with humanity, with his creatures, and most specifically through Jesus Christ. The language is used here, though, in the Old Testament. It isn't even new to the Old Testament. It's, it's all over. The writers use this all the time. They tell Israel to remember God's character, to remember God's mighty deeds, to remember the times that he has rescued them. It tells them to remember his words and remember his commandments. And more than anything else, he tells them to remember the very character of God and his covenant with them. This idea of remember is not just some idea like, hey, remember this list of things. You know what I mean? Like, uh, remember to take out the trash, Remember to walk the dog. Uh, remember to clean up your room. Remember to close the, the windows before it rains. And uh, remember also your creator. That's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is, is, is not just a mental act of remembering or something that needs to stay on the list. This is an act of worship. This is an act of recognition and honor for God who is the creator. One scholar helps us by saying this, to remember him is no perfunctory or purely mental act. It is to drop our pretense or like our lying self-sufficiency and commit ourselves to him. At its best and strongest, remembrance can be a matter of passionate fidelity. That's faithfulness or loyalty. So it's no wonder that Jesus sums up all of the commandments by giving us the greatest commandment that the Lord is one. There's only one creator. And you are to love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not just remembering something on a checklist, an answer for a test. He is talking about passionate fidelity to God and God alone. The foundation for a life of wisdom is a recognition and then complete commitment to God who made you. My question is then to you, is this the way that you live. I want, you to be, I want to be real clear to this morning. Um, the grace of this passage is the call for you and I to snap out of it. The grace is that he calls us over and over again to show us and say, remember your creator. You know why? I said it before. We're forgetful people. We forget all that he has shown us in himself that he's given to us and he's established in Jesus Christ as he's called us to himself. The grace this morning, guys, is that we would hear this clearly and respond with joy. Do you rejoice in your youth without fear as you live unto the Lord, your creator? Does this shape how you live all of your different relationships, all of your different liturgies of your own life, the commitments that you guys make? Does this shape it, that God is your creator? That has a certain gravity that's different than anything else that this world can bring. It's a better philosophy than anything else can bring. It's the reality, the truth that God is our creator. 
as I said before, this call to remember our covenant Lord is all throughout the Old Testament, but it's not only an Old Testament call. Jesus regularly turns the eyes of his disciples to, in his kindness to remembrance, to this kind of fidelity. In John 15, it was actually read this morning, I didn't know it was going to happen, he instructs them to abide in him, to obey his commandments. And then in verse 10 and 11, he says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, here we go, and that your joy may be full. Jesus' commands, Jesus' commands aren't about duty and self-denial and self-powered good works that get repaid with joy. No, Jesus' commands are about finding our joy in God. Everything comes through this filter. Now, it may seem strange to you, but if you ask the question, uh, how do I enjoy God? How do I rightly find joy in, in my youth before my Creator? The first and foremost way to do this is by loving God, by knowing Him, by seeing that He is good. We cry out, only Jesus, only Jesus, give us Jesus, we cry. That's not only for some of us, guys. That's for all of us as we are trained to know this God and see him because we can't see him with our eyes. But by God's grace, he gives us faith and calls us to know and love him. And as we do, we are enriched, and we find that even the most menial tasks and parts of our life are filled with eternal joy and meaning. When we remember our Creator, we can truly rejoice in the life that God has given us. I'll say one more quick thing. Jesus told his disciples to remember him. He set up the second ordinance, right? Uh, uh, to, to the Lord's Supper to remember him in the new covenant. It's a normal thing for God's people to be called to remember their Lord. I want to go back, one more thought then. I've said this over and over again, and kids, you probably know this, but maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. Life is gift, not gain. And if you don't know what I'm talking about quite yet, let me, let me just slow down and see if we can get this. Let me try. God has given us life. That's a gift for us. It is a gift to enjoy, to use up, and as we learned last time, to give out. It's not for us to gain, something for us to hoard, something for us to secure and ratchet down so that nobody gets it and keep forever. We know that we can take nothing with us when we die. And so our passage calls us to enjoy life, remembering our Creator and Lord, because one day we will grow old and die, and we will face eternity. With our limited perspective, we will tend to one extreme or the other when we, when we come to face with this. We will either be selfish hedonists and just live it up for this time as much as I can get for myself, or we'll be these depressed fatalists. The only way to escape such a wicked misery is to believe that we were created for eternity and that this life is a gift from our Creator. And it's to be lived in worship. Charles Dickens was a preacher of a changed life based on, you know, a good look of reality from a different perspective. Through the experience of his characters, he, he shows that we too can look at our bad deeds and the shortcomings and make a choice to live and change our lives. But here's the problem. 
Charles Dickens is borrowing all that stuff from the Christian worldview without ever acknowledging the one who put the world together. In this story, the concern is how the rest of mankind views Scrooge, how the actions that he will do should be better by living for others and stop being so selfish. In a sense, he is preaching happy, moral humanism, even if Dickens wasn't necessarily a humanist. Not so in Ecclesiastes. That's not what's happening here. Instead of looking at how a person's actions will affect other people and then trying to tell them they should change so that it makes other people more happy, he tells us to look at the Creator, to remember the Creator always, to worship Him, and to rejoice in the life that He has given us. So I call us then to look at the Creator, not just today, but every day. Not just at the beginning of the day in your, in your quiet time, but as you continue on over and over and over again, remembering, loving, worshiping your Creator and God. I call us to do this and therefore to find joy in the God who has given these things. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this call. Lord, would you snap us out of the life that we try to live here. We try to live. At times we are seen, we see what's happening and we're depressed. We're nihilists that think it's not going anywhere. Or we're just like, if it doesn't matter, who cares? Let's just give in to it and have fun. Lord, instead would we rejoice in the gift that you have given to us. Help us not to idolize it, but rather may we find our joy in knowing and loving you. Help us, we pray. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.